conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, as is Becky Kovach. We are talking all about Good Omens, which only has one season. We will probably do an episode on the book too. It's just a matter of Becky waiting for me to read it. But Becky, how are you doing today? I'm good. And don't worry, I honestly haven't even finished the book. It's now been like a year and a half since I started it. And I just never got around to getting through the whole thing. So, Well, that makes me feel a little better at <laughs> least because as we are recording this, I am currently reading Under the Dome by Stephen King for my other podcast, Chat Cemetery, which is, I believe my copy is 1,074 pages long. <laughs> oh, I was going to say that's probably a hefty one. Yeah, it it is so heavy that I get tired just like having it in my lap reading. <laughs> As is the case with a lot of Stephen King books. So I feel bad that I haven't finished Good Omens yet because it doesn't like it makes it sound like the book isn't something that makes you want to finish. It's that's literally not it. Like the book and the show are so fun. I just lost motivation to read when the world went to hell in a handbasket. Understandable. Totally understandable. But, you know, this show is actually only six episodes. So it's roughly six hours because, you know, they're longer episodes. It's on Amazon Prime. So if you have that and you haven't checked out the show, I highly recommend doing that. You know, just stop this and then watch it and then come back. But Becky, I know this is something we've been talking about for a while now because we have been watching American Gods and we read the American Gods book by Neil Gaiman as well. And he creates very interesting stories that are based on things that are fairly well known, like some Greek mythology and all of this stuff. And usually it's stuff I'm not familiar with because those aren't topics that ever really interested me. But what do you think it is about Neil Gaiman that sort of just makes these things so fun to watch? Well, I think, like you said, he kind of takes, you know, elements from different mythologies or religions and things like that. And he kind of turns them on their heads a little bit, makes them a little bit more accessible for people, but also just like injects this really great sense of humor into all of it that I think is very appealing and makes it just so fun to kind of watch or read along. Yeah. Plus the way that the shows have been created, they're very visually appealing as well. It's not yes. like it's necessarily super bleak and dark. There's lots of color in these shows, depending on, you know, what moments you're at in the story. And to dive on into Good Omens, I think what makes this really good too is the cast, because you have David Tennant, Michael Sheen, Francis McDormand's voice. <laughs> you have John Hamm mm -hmm. and Michael McKeon. And obviously, that's not all of the characters, but those were the names that really stood out to me and really felt like they made this show what it was. Yeah. And I, I don't think I could see this show doing as well as it did if the two main characters, Michael Sheen and, and David Tennant, were played by anybody else. Like, I think that they're what made those roles so memorable. Yeah, plus you have the fact that David Tennant is playing Crowley, 
Crowley, whichever one he's deciding to go by, you know, his name kind of changes during the show. And Michael Sheen is playing Aziraphale. So Tennant is playing a devil. Sheen is playing an angel. And the way they play off of each other just works so well for the show. Yeah, they're very, they're very similar actors and just like their mannerisms and how they kind of carry themselves in roles. And um, right before the show came out, I went to a talk that Neil Gaiman did about the show and about the book. And Michael Sheen was a guest. And, you know, he was talking about how him and David Tennant have kind of chased each other around going after the same roles for years. So it was fun to finally get to work on something together like this, because Crowley and, and Aziraphale are so similar even though they are technically like on opposite sides of of whatever is going on. Yeah, it was just so much fun <laughs> to watch the two of them go back and forth with the banter and even just their mannerisms, the way they played these characters. It makes me really excited to read the book and kind of see if they're portrayed the same way or if they really just went all out with these performances because I feel like both actors are willing to sort of go over the top and they Mm -hmm. don't do it to the point where it's too much in this it's like just the right amount yeah it's like just absurd enough to be funny without being like kitschy yeah and obviously a lot of the story centers around them but it also centers around these events that are happening. You know, they're kind of waiting for the apocalypse, so to speak. And you have characters like war coming in. And you have later on Anathema, I want to say is how she pronounced her name, but I'm not 100% sure that is correct anymore. And you have the boy Adam. And it sort of all starts in the scene where Crowley delivers the baby Antichrist to these, what are they, the nuns of Satan or something like that? Yeah, it's like some sisterhood of nuns that like worship the Dark Lord and they run a hospital. So they're like delivering babies that night. The only problem is that there's this one nun who doesn't really get anything to do because it's made very clear that she's kind of the one that they don't want to give any meaningful tasks to. But then, you know, the baby Antichrist is dropped in her arms pretty much and she takes it to the wrong room. And that's how this sort of perpetuates the remaining events that take place throughout the next five episodes. Yeah, she there's like two babies being delivered on the same night. One is the son of like an American ambassador. And then the other is the son of just like this random British couple. And they were supposed to swap out the baby of the American ambassador and accidentally swap out the baby of the the British couple. So right away, everything is off to a really rough start. And then you have the fact that the convent is just on fire at the end of everything. And it's like, okay, you've served your purpose, now you will burn. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this this right away sets the whole show up for, like you said, being very like very wacky, very funny without being over the top. Um, I also love the way that 
all of this is kind of presented in the first episode. It really kind of sets up the style of the show itself and how the stories are being told. Because, you know, obviously with the intro, we have God talking about the creation of the world and we don't see God, but we hear her speaking and talking about God being a Libra. And then we get to the convent and they show the card game (laughs) where you like switch the cards around and and trick people to hide the, the correct card and just kind of treating the babies like a card trick, which I thought was very funny and very clever. There's so much chaos in this first episode that sets you up for what's to come. And it's so well done that even though it is chaotic, it's in the best way possible for the pacing of the TV show. Mm -hmm. Especially with like, like you said, it's only six episodes. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a lot to cover in those six episodes. Yeah, things happen fast because in the first episode, we start to see the two boys grown up, not grown up, grown up, but, you know, they're like 10, 11, 12, whatever it is. And we see that the hellhound finds Adam and Adam being a child just names him dog. Yeah. I love when the hellhound shows up because he like appears on the scene as this snarling like monster dog. And Adam's like, I want a small dog, the kind of dog that you can kind of like run around and have fun with. So he has to kind of change his appearance to suit what Adam wants, which is just like a little puppy. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, hey, I want a dog. And this dog just magically appeared. And because he's a kid, he's not going to question it whatsoever. No, of course not. I wouldn't have. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, it's funny because even just having watched this, it's like all of the episodes kind of blend together because... I thought for whatever reason we met Anathema in later episodes, like in the second half of the season, but nope, she's in episode two, which is also when we get our introduction to War, who is played by, I'm probably going to butcher her name, but Morel Enos, who has been in numerous other shows that I happen to watch as well. I think she's in Hannah, which is also another Amazon Prime show. Okay. I don't don't think I've watched that. But this is another performance that's definitely over the top. Like this, I would not say is similar to any of her other performances that I've seen. But when you're war, you have to be crazy and chaotic. Right. And I think think that kind of goes, I guess they're like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like you want them to be terrifying and you need to make it kind of obvious who they are without... Like, they still look like people, so you have to find a way to make it obvious, like, this is who this is. Well, I think they also give you, like, name cards in the show to be like, we are telling you right now who this is. Yes. (laughs) Because you have war, death, pollution, and famine. Yeah. I I love the way they – I really do love the way that they kind of made them outwardly these four things without, like I said, with with them still being people or presenting as people. That worked really well for me because we're kind of already living in this fantasy world when you know that the Antichrist has been delivered as a baby. You have the hellhound, you have an angel and a demon working together, which they're not supposed to. So it's like, you already know that things aren't what they're supposed to be. So the fact that they give you these big four things and just have them portrayed as people 
instead of just being like, oh, war is a literal war. You know, I think this works better in the context of the show. Yeah, I agree. I think that it works really, really well. And it's kind of no different than having gods portrayed as people. Yeah, that's true. That I mean, you could draw that comparison to American gods in the way that each of like the old and the new gods are represented. Yeah, and my apologies. I said the apocalypse earlier. It is Armageddon. Wrong A word. <laughs> Which is funny because they are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but they're arriving in time for Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. Like the start of the war between angels and, and demons. Yeah. And what did you think of the dynamic of Crowley and Aziraphale working together? And hopefully I'm pronouncing Crowley, right? Crowley, Crowley. I don't remember already it definitely switches back and forth throughout the show where like they make a point at at, in one of the episodes of being like oh or whatever he's calling himself these days like I love them as a team and as friends I think that it's so funny to see an angel and a demon working together and they try so hard to kind of fight against it but through centuries of being on earth together and kind of watching out for each other they do become friends. And the thing that draws them together is trying to stop this Armageddon that's going to destroy the world. It's like that friend you have where you don't necessarily agree with everything they believe or say or are interested in even. And it's that one thing that kind of ties the two of you together. And this is Mm -hmm. really what that felt like. Yeah, they balance each other out. And, like, aren't afraid to call each other out on their crap. And they point out, I think, more than once that, you know, a demon is just a fallen angel. Yeah, which is very, yeah, that's something that I didn't, like, think about a whole lot, even though they do point it out. But it makes sense why they would get along so well, even though they're technically, like, opposites. Yeah, and he has to be good at lying as a demon because, one, he's trying to not get caught. And, you know, with Aziraphale, it's a little more difficult because he's used to being good still. So with him, you see that struggle of, oh boy, how am I going to explain this one to, you know, Gabriel and all of the other angels that he constantly meets with throughout these six episodes? Right, or when they're talking about how to stop the Armageddon one of the solutions that like Crowley comes up with is, you know, we could just get rid of the Antichrist. And Aziraphale is very clearly like upset at the thought of having to do away with this child who like hasn't done anything wrong yet. He just what he was born. Right. And it's one of those greater good debates. You know, do you sacrifice this child for the greater good of literally everyone else on the planet? (laughs) Right. Or do you not? Because at this moment in time, he's an innocent child. Right. And I can definitely see how that would be a tough decision. But in episode two, we also get the sort of backstory with Agnes and her book, How She Died. She was a witch burned at the stake, but then kind of took everyone else out with her. (laughs) And, you know, Anathema is her descendant. I don't know how many removed she is at this point. It's probably like a great, 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 great granddaughter. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably pretty far down. Like, and Agnes Nutter isn't like a a huge character within the show, but she very much shapes like what happens within it. 
because of all her predictions. Right. And like with the book, you do get that like subtitle of the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which and they they talk about it a little bit throughout the series, but they kind of dropped that title from the show, which I think was a little bit of a bummer. I would have kept it. Yeah, given how important of a role all of that plays in right. the final events and how episode six wraps up, you would think they would have kept that. At least had it like somewhat more prominently within the show. Yeah, and then, you know, episode three takes us on this kind of crazy time jump so that we see the history between our demon and our angel. And, you know, that is such a wild ride. And usually I'm not super fond of timelines jumping around everywhere. But, you know, after having just watched Lost for six seasons, oof, oof. episode three didn't okay. seem so bad. <laughs> Yeah, after loss, anything seems simple. <laughs> and we've, we've talked about timelines and like flashbacks and stuff a lot through doing your other podcasts in the Dark Tower series. I actually very much enjoyed the kind of timeline of their friendship because it, it even though none of what they were showing is like present day, it still has such a direct impact on everything because we see why they're working together and why they work so well together because they've been through a lot. Yeah, and it helps that they don't age really. So it's not like things look weird when they're flashing back. It's not like they're young boys and it's different people entirely. You still have right. that same banter and you see how it was built up over the years. And I think this kind of time jump is fine because it served a purpose to sort of show us their history and they kept it to one part of the episode. I think it was kind of like half an episode and then it's almost like mm -hmm. you got the intro again and then it's like the rest of the episode started. It was very strange. I was like, am I watching a new episode? Yeah, I think it also, it, it works because it kind of gives you that character development that you really need for for the two yeah. of them. Um, and it, it shows like why they want to save the world and why they're so attached to it because they've spent so much time on earth with people that people have kind of started to rub off on them. Exactly. And again, it wasn't the full episode. So I think it worked because then in the second half, we get Adam meeting Anathema. And I don't really understand how this happened, but the hellhound was able to go into the house, even though there was the horseshoe thing. And it's like they explained it, but they didn't really explain why the dog was able to go in. Yeah, that was a little bit confusing. And I didn't quite understand that because he technically shouldn't have been able to enter the house. But I think doesn't Adam like call him into the house? Yeah. So maybe it's like Adam had to be invited in and then Adam had to invite in the dog. But that always seemed like it was more of a vampire thing. So yeah, who knows? But I'm glad I wasn't the only one a little confused by that. And the second half of this mini series here is where, you know, Armageddon finally starts to begin. And it doesn't unravel as fast as you think it's going to once it has quote unquote started, which I think is nice because they would have had to then wait until episode five or six for Armageddon to start if they were going to sort of blow through everything. And 
you know, by the time it starts to begin in episode four, we've spent some time with Adam and his friends. We've spent plenty of time with Aziraphale and Crowley. We've seen, you know, the backstory for Anathema. And it's like, within those first three episodes, they do a lot of character work to get you to Armageddon starting. Yeah, it's a lot that's very like, it's very compact like they do fit in a whole lot in those first three episodes and even though they're an hour-long episode each um it's still i mean that could be hundreds of pages of a book right there yeah do you happen to know off the top of your head roughly how long this book is i don't think it's quite as long as some of gaiman's other books like american gods right no the copy that i have i have it next to me actually the copy i have is less than 400 pages it's like 370 so not too terribly long i mean maybe to some people that's long but as someone who keeps reading stephen king books that is nothing (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that that's a pretty that's a pretty easy size book there yeah so i feel like the six episodes and obviously not having read the book at all It felt like the right length because in episode four, you see Adam starts acting a little more strange and you can tell his friends are picking up on it too. So even though we know much earlier than his friends do, we don't know when this thing is going to happen because the way it's told, you kind of think this thing is going to start happening right when he gets the dog. Right. Right. There's something to do with, like, the naming of the dog. He officially, like, accepts his powers as the Antichrist or something like that. So they make it sound like as soon as he has gotten the dog and named it and it's become his, like, that's when it really starts. Right. And I love how you have Aziraphale and Crowley starting to realize that they've been watching the wrong child this whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they're trying to cover it up because they were basically told the wrong child because of the mix-up in episode one. And it's not like it was their fault that the nun didn't give the right child to the right family. Right. That's completely on the nuns. So then they've spent all this time, like, pretending to be a nanny and a gardener at the American ambassador's home and watching this bo- this boy like grow up only to find out that they've been in the wrong place for years. Yeah, and the fact that nobody figured this out until over a decade later, it's just like, okay, you can't really blame the two of them because someone else, you know, maybe higher up than them should have realized. Well, I think... It all kind of comes back to the favorite word of the show, or at least what I think it was, is ineffable. Mm -hmm. And like God's great plan is ineffable. (laughs) So nobody really knows what's going on. Did you enjoy the part where Aziraphale is like, I need to talk to God right now? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I did. I would also like to note that I really liked his bookstore, even though it was probably full of books that would not interest me. (laughs) Yeah, the bookstore is very, very, very nice. And I was so upset when it burns down. And I know, like, he is too. Like, he spent hundreds of years collecting all of these first editions and signed copies. And he doesn't ever sell anything. He It's literally just his collection with a bookstore as a front. Yeah. 
Sounds like something I would do if I could live that long. I wish I could do something like that. (laughs) But it's sort of the small details like that, too, that I think just really add to the show a lot. Because really, the books, aside from Agnes's, are irrelevant. Yeah, the per like the bookstore and the, the books that he's collected, they all just kind of further develop like his humanity, like what he loves about the human world and being on Earth. And I think they each kind of have their own little quirks in that respect. It's so, like with Aziraphale, it's the books, it's eating sushi at a really nice restaurant and like food in general. And then with Crowley, he's got his car, he's got music, he's got a house full of plants that he talks to. <laughs> He's not very nice to the plants, though, but he is a demon, so we let that pass. But, oh my goodness, the car and then the car burning up. They really love to burn people's prized possessions here. Yes, they do, which is so sad because that was a nice car, too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a Rolls Royce, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that, yeah. Like a fancy, expensive car. Yeah, and an old one, too, not one that's, like, present day. (laughs) Yeah, but like I said, these things just kind of, like further show how ingrained in human society and culture the two have become. And it's it, I love seeing that in two beings that are supposed to be so above it all. Yeah, so let's kind of wrap up the storyline with what happens in episodes five and six here. You know, Adam's friends at this point have started to try to convince him to not take over the world because, of course, he explains it to them. And they're just like, yeah, okay, we're going to go with this because you're being very strange and, you know, their mouths disappear. And I think that's kind of the moment when they're like, oh, this is serious. Yeah, he gets real scary. And like, he's what, like a 10, 12-year-old boy, and he's talking about basically obliterating humankind and starting over again with his friends. Yeah, and even though episode five isn't when we first meet another character, Pulsifer, very strange name, but, you know, (laughs) he's kind of been working with Shadwell, who is really portrayed as this sort of mentally ill conspiracy theory guy, but it turns out of course, that he was right about these things mm-hmm. and him and Pulsifer are supposed to find witches. And if I'm not mistaken, Pulsifer is the descendant of the guy who burned Agnes at the stake. Yes, I think that's right. I know he's definitely the descendant of a witch finder. And it, that's why like his relationship with Anathema is funny because... She is the descendant of a witch. He's the descendant of a witch finder. But they end up like kind of falling for each other and working together. And that was sort of their written destiny that Agnes already knew was going to happen. Yeah. And Agnes knew all of this before any of it actually happened. She had it all planned out. Do you think Agnes was God, like living on Earth? Maybe. Like her plan was actually written down somewhere and they just don't realize it and didn't bother to read the book. And then Francis McDormand just took over as God. Yeah. I could believe that. It is a Neil Gaiman novel. (laughs) (laughs) Anything is possible. Yeah. Or like Francis McDormand is Agnes Nutter and didn't actually burn up, just let them believe that she did and like went about her, her business. Yeah. Who knows? Because I feel like you would definitely not be able to just burn God alive. Right. And they keep talking about the great plan, like, so it is written. Maybe it is. 
Wow, you thought about this way more than I did. <laughs> I, I thought about it a lot. But this is good. These are things I didn't even consider, but they make complete sense within the confines of this particular story. Yeah, because, I mean, all of the prophecies are right. What if they weren't prophecies? It was just her, like, writing down her plan and putting it out there, and people thought she was nuts and didn't realize, like, oh, no, this is actually what's going to happen. It's even small things, like the storm that comes and goes pretty quickly, and all of the prophecies are kind of just strewn all over the house. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, it should be over in 30 seconds. And it is so precise. Yeah. Or like there's another one that I I always find so funny. It's like an apple shall shall arise that no man can eat. And it's like prophesizing the start of Apple, like the company. (laughs) Yeah. Because that was what? I think the 80s, roughly. Yeah. Yeah, that... That's too funny. And I really just love the settings in general for all of these different locations. And, you know, obviously, this is definitely much more a UK production. Yeah, the, the locations they shoot at are beautiful. And watching through it just really makes me hate the fact that we're living in a world in which I cannot travel to any of them. Having been to like London and seeing the streets and being able to kind of recognize where they're at. Is really fun. Yeah, and as someone who has not been there, it felt very authentic to the locations they were portraying. You know, you have the village kind of area where Adam lives. And I don't mean village in the sense of like they're living in huts and stuff. I mean, that's just what they're called there. Yes, like English countryside little town. And then you just have these big characters like the neighborhood watch guy. And it's not even that he appears more than, what, a few times, but it's like every time there's some sort of funny interaction that just gives you this levity for a few minutes. Yeah, I I liked him a lot. So it was a lot of the big things combining with these small things that in the grand scheme of things don't really matter, but they just make the show enjoyable. And then episode six is our big sort of showdown. And I love that Aziraphale and Crowley sort of swap bodies so that they don't have to get punished. (laughs) They like, yeah, they switch faces so that they can endure each other's punishments because they both know it's coming. They both know that their respective sides blame them for the Armageddon not happening. So Crowley ends up in heaven with the angels and taking the like the hellish punishment that they dish out for him and Aziraphale goes to hell and like his punishment is bathing in holy water but because he's an angel it doesn't do anything and the looks on the other demons faces as it does (laughs) not affect him whatsoever it's just like complete horror and he takes the water and just like flings it at the sort of window that they're all staring at him through and you can see them like moving thinking it's going to kill them yeah things that I did not know I needed until I had them David Tennant in what looks like an old school like swimming bathing suit (laughs) outfit in a tub just like flailing around and splashing water everyone (laughs) it was such a fun moment and I know Stranger Things came out 
well after this book was written, but you have these moments with the kids in particular where they're riding their bikes and they're like on this mission. And it's something that always feels like this is a thing kids would do, especially given the time period. And Mm -hmm. even though, you know, they are riding to the military base to take on war, death, pollution, and famine, it still felt like that nostalgia moment where you're like, yes, they're on a mission. Yeah. It kind of like makes you flash back to like childhood and spending summer afternoons like riding your bike around. Yeah, and, you know, that seems to be a thing that kids do less and less these days. To be fair, we're in a global pandemic, but I guess you can ride a bike and still be safe. True. I don't know. I feel like I have seen very little of the world outside of my walls lately. Yeah, well, living in Colorado now, you know, it snowed today, so I don't think anyone's riding their bike right now. (laughs) It's a little cold for that. But what did you think of the finale Because I thought it worked really well to wrap up the story. And, you know, since neither of us have read the end of the book, I feel like we can kind of go into this not being influenced by the source material. I I really like the way it ends um, because it kind of ends with Aziraphale and Crowley, which is also kind of how our story began, just like with the two of them. Yeah, it comes full circle, and I think that works really well. And then the car's back. And the car's back. Yeah, I think it works full circle, especially because they are very much like the central characters in this show and in this story. So I I don't know how else they could have ended it that would have worked. Yeah, I really liked how this ended too, because it wasn't necessarily that it was like, the happiest of endings because they were both kind of like oh what's gonna happen you know and then you have that scene where what are they getting it's either gelato or ice cream or something and then all of the people kind of sneak up on them yeah it kind of leaves it open to like if they wanted to do more they could yeah I haven't heard anything about any follow-up to this and I don't know if that's just because there are, you know, lots of other Neil Gaiman things in the works right now. You know, American Gods Season 3 is probably close to being finished by the time this episode will be going up. Yeah. I also, because I guess we all haven't read the book, so we also don't know, like, where that kind of wraps up and how it wraps up. If there's more beyond what we've seen in the show or if it kind of follows to the end of the book. Yeah, and I mean, we get a lot of story in these six episodes, so I wouldn't be surprised one way or another, because it feels like we got a full story in this season, but it was left open enough to where you're like, okay, you could come back if you wanted to, and before I forget, there's one character who is fairly important in all of this, and his name is Haster, I believe, and... He's the one who sets the convent on fire in episode one. He ends up trying to get Crowley and he's in the answering machine. Yes. One of the, yeah, one of the ways that the demons kind of communicate throughout the show is like popping up in electronics and speaking directly to him. 
Yeah, so that just adds this sort of other rivalry that Crowley sort of has, because obviously he's supposed to have this rivalry with Aziraphale, but we all know by that point it's definitely more of a friendship, and they help each other out where they can, but they still do just enough to keep their respective sides from asking too many questions. Yeah. Is there anything else that stood out to you throughout these six episodes? I know you've watched this twice now, right? Yeah, I watched it when it first came out, and then I spent the last like week rewatching. I don't know. I feel like I my honestly like the big thing that I was thinking about was just like what if Agnes Sutter was actually <laughs> valid and questions. We we've talked about that. So well, I'm glad you were able to get that off your chest, and you know. <laughs> kind of run through it a little here. I've been pleasantly surprised by how much I've enjoyed Neil Gaiman stuff because I know you and I have talked before about how fantasy isn't really one of my favorite genres. You know, you and I had been reading through the Harry Potter books, which we didn't get around to finishing, but I think there are certain fantasy type stories like this and American Gods and the Dark Tower that grab my interest for reasons that aren't rooted in fantasy. And I think that's what has been making these things more enjoyable for me. Yeah, I think it very much depends on like how the story is presented. And he does a really great job of rooting these fantasy stories in like something that feels like the real world. Yeah. And, you know, I've never been a super huge fan of things like The Lord of the Rings or I know, if I'm not mistaken, Game of Thrones had a lot of fantasy elements to it. But I think with this, it's just because there are some elements of horror a little, but there's also comedic relief in these, I think, a lot more than some of the other things that I've been made aware of in the fantasy genre anyway. That's a really good point. I I think you're right about that, where a lot of fantasy doesn't necessarily incorporate like a humorous aspect to it. Mm -hmm. But with Neil Gaiman works, like you always get his sense of humor. Yeah. And I think both this adaptation and, you know, I know you and I will be talking about American Gods season three soon, probably. And... I just think the adaptations have brought that across really well, even though I think American Gods is a, a little more dire than this one. Yeah, it's a, it's a little more intense. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more going on in that one. Not that there isn't a lot that happens here, but it's sort of consolidated to taking place around this one big event that's going to happen. Yeah. Whereas in American Gods, every time... They think they've sort of thwarted one event. There's another one and another one. Right. And with American Gods, like it is building into what is going to be a full out war. Whereas with this, like it kind of builds up to a war that doesn't actually happen. Yeah. It's just like they do all this build up and then it's like, no, we're good. We got it. We're fine. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to fight. All of the angels, the angels and the demons all were pretty upset that <laughs> they did not get to have their war. This is true. Well, Becky, anything else before we wrap up here? No, I'm all good. Well, thank you for joining me. I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this one. And, you know, I think watching 
these things. And like I said, reading Neil Gaiman has maybe opened me up to checking out some other fantasy stuff that maybe is a little more similar in tone. I don't know what those things would be yet because I'm still very busy reading Stephen King books. (laughs) But one day, maybe I will find out. One day you won't be reading Stephen King anymore and then you will have all the time in the world. I will have so much free time. I don't want to say so much, but (laughs) I will have a little more free time. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Becky. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at GeekdomPod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.